how do we know that the Bible has the authority to establish all of these doctrines that we've talked about up to this point? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, September the 10th of 2008, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. And of course, today being a Wednesday, we're going to be covering our next lesson on the essentials. And of course, as you probably saw when you download this message, today we're talking about the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us, especially if this is your first time joining us. We're blessed to have you here, and we hope that you stick around and listen to what we have to say, and we hope you listen to the lessons that have led up to this one so that you can get an idea for where we're coming from. But anyway, I hope you guys are having a fantastic week. I've been just unbelievably busy with this Daniel class that I took over the summer trying to finish up the coursework in there, and I'm almost done, but man, it's really been really been trying. There's a lot of stuff to, to cover in there. But uh, but I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. And like I said, I'm going to make these papers that, I've, that I'm uh, writing for this class available to you guys. So that'll be uh, available as soon as they're done. So I'll let you guys know. But I also wanted to let you guys know that we're going to be having clear window stickers for you guys to put on your cars. And uh, I'll let you guys know the details for that as soon as they come in. But, you know, it's not the old-fashioned sticker that you would put on the bumper of your car. Instead, what this is, it's transparent, and it has white print on it. And if you guys know what our logo looks like on iTunes, for example, it looks a lot like that. It's it's pretty much exactly that, except it's uh, all in white instead of light blue. And then the background is clear, so uh, so it blends right in with your back windshield. But anyway, I'll let you guys know when those come in. But without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started today with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word, and we just pray that you would help us to understand why your word is an authority today, in order that you would be glorified, and in order that we could understand why we believe what we believe better than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in our study on the essentials, we've covered a lot of doctrines, I mean a lot of different things, that we've derived from where? Where have we derived all these things from? Well, we've derived them from the Bible. But why have we derived them from the Bible? That's really the question. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what makes the Bible any different from any other book? What gives the Bible more authority than the Quran or the Hindu Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon, for that matter? What is it that sets the Bible apart from and above these other books. It's because scripture is inspired by God. That's the answer. It's because scripture is inspired by God. Now, when we talk about God inspiring scripture, we don't mean it in the same sense as, you know, when you see a a beautiful sunset, maybe, and you feel inspired to take a picture of it or to paint a picture of it or to write a poem about it or anything like that. It's not that type of inspiration. The Bible wasn't written by people who were inspired in that sense. So in what sense 
is the Bible inspired? Well, we're going to get to that in just a few moments here. So buckle your seatbelts and hang on because there's a lot of stuff that we're going to be covering today. But first, I need to remind you that at the beginning of this study, we noted that some of the things that we talk about in this study will be explicitly necessary to believe in order to receive salvation, while other things are implicitly necessary to believe. Now, let's just set the record straight once and for all. It is not necessary for a person to believe that scripture is inspired or inerrant in order for them to be saved. So let's just set the record straight as far as that's concerned. But the problem is that if the Bible is not inspired by God, then we have no absolute foundation for the beliefs that are necessary to have in order to be saved. So without a Bible that is both inspired and absolutely accurate, we would have no absolute foundation upon which our beliefs could stand. And for that reason, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture are fundamental to all the doctrines that we've covered so far in this study. Well, let's start off with uh, looking at the earliest book of the Bible. How do we know that the Bible is inspired? Well, the first five books of the Bible were originally all one complete writing. They were broken up and separated over time because no scroll was big enough to contain all of them. And, you know, of course, the old scriptures were contained in scrolls. So this was called the Pentateuch, and it was written by Moses. Now, the book of Deuteronomy was originally part of the Pentateuch. And in chapter 18, verse 18 of Deuteronomy, we read God saying to Moses, quote, I will put my words into his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And then centuries later, the book of Second Chronicles referred to, quote, the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. And then the prophet Zechariah in chapter 7, verse 12, refers to the fact that the law, that is the law of Moses, or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. And then in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 21, we read God telling Isaiah about, quote, my words that I have put into your mouth. Uh, when King David was dying, he said, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. That's Second Samuel chapter 23 verse 2. And then in the New Testament, we find similar testimony. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul wrote that the things he taught the Corinthian church were, quote, taught by the Spirit, because as he wrote in verse 10, uh, to us God revealed these things through the Spirit. Similarly, he told his Galatian readers that what he preached, quote, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And that's chapter 1, verse 12 of Galatians. Also in the New Testament, Peter wrote that, quote, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And finally, John began the book of Revelation by identifying his writing as, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. That's from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. So further, phrases such as, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me, or just simply God said, are found literally hundreds upon hundreds of times throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Words and phrases such as these leave absolutely no room for doubt that the writer, 
is asserting that the words they are recording are from God himself. Now, let's talk about what it means for the Bible to be inspired. This is the issue that we had kind of brought up a few minutes ago at the beginning of the podcast. What does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? Well, writing in reference to the Old Testament, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that, quote, all scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, there's that word, inspired. What does it mean? Well, let's not overlook the fact that the word inspired is used here because there isn't an English word that is equivalent to the Greek word that's used here. The Greek word would literally be translated God-breathed. So it would say all scripture is God-breathed in the Greek. So this verse is not saying that people are inspired in the same way one might be inspired to write a song or paint a picture or yada, yada, yada. Rather, the image that this word paints is that of a ship with its sails up being pushed in the direction that the wind blows it. And for that reason, we can surmise that Paul was saying that Scripture has divine authority for faith and practice. Now, while Paul was referring specifically to the Old Testament, we also find that the New Testament is also inspired scripture. Peter referred to Paul's writings as scripture as well in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. So logically, you know, this makes sense because the New Testament writers, according to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5, were all prophets as well. So finally, let's take a look at what Jesus believed and affirmed about scripture. Well, first of all, he declared that it is authoritative. When he was out in the wilderness for 40 days in Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, he was being tempted by the devil, and he responded to Satan's temptation by declaring that, quote, it is written, get that? It is written, so he's quoting an authority here, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of of God. He also said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, he said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We find these in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, verse 7, and verse 10. So Jesus held the scriptures to be authoritative because they were the word of God. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus told the Jews of his day that, quote, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So Jesus believed that scripture was authoritative. Jesus also declared that scripture is imperishable. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus proclaimed, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus also taught, thirdly, that scripture is infallible. In John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus proclaimed that, quote, Scripture cannot be broken. Fourth, Jesus taught that the Bible was inerrant, and that simply means that the original writings of Scripture contained no errors. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus declared to the Father, Your word is truth. And so, based on what the Bible teaches us about God, we can know 
that the Bible is inerrant. First of all, we have seen that the Bible is the Word of God, but the Bible also teaches us that God cannot err. And therefore, because God wrote the Bible, and because God cannot err, the necessary and logical conclusion is that the Bible cannot err. So we've already demonstrated that the Bible is God's Word, but how do we know that God can't err? Well, first of all, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, for example, we read that it is impossible for God to lie. We also find that in James chapter 1, verse 17. We also know from Scripture that God is completely just. He's completely righteous and completely good, and he's all-powerful. Now, what does it mean, just for the record here, what does it mean for God to be all-powerful? Does it mean that he can do absolutely anything, whether it's possible logically or not? Well, we don't believe that God can do what is logically impossible. Rather, God is all-powerful in the sense that he can do anything and everything that is logically possible. Do we believe that God can make a square circle? In other words, it's a square and a circle at the same time. Well, no, we don't. Do we believe that he can be all-powerful and at the same time and in the same sense be not all-powerful? Again, no, because that violates the law of non-contradiction. But is it logically impossible for God to inspire scripture? Not at all. So because he is all-good and all-powerful, God cannot err. So fifth, Jesus also taught that scripture is historically accurate. Even some of the stories in the Bible, which, you know, a lot of modern theologians and Bible teachers have tried to write off as a myth, Jesus asserted those stories to be historically true. For example, in uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, we read Jesus saying, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So logically then, if Jonah was, uh, wasn't was really in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, then we would also have to say that Jesus wasn't really in the tomb for three days and three nights. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, Jesus also affirmed the historical accuracy of the story of Noah and the flood. So Jesus affirmed that the Bible is historically accurate. Sixth, he also taught that scripture is scientifically accurate. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, we see that Jesus confirmed the scientific accuracy of the creation account of Adam and Eve from the beginning of Genesis, for example. Uh, He didn't promote evolution. He affirmed that the Bible was true. And finally, Jesus affirmed that Scripture held authority above and beyond tradition. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And then the verse uh, that follows it that we've already read when Jesus told uh, the Jewish leaders, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So the scripture has authority over tradition. Now, again, a person doesn't need to believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God in order to be saved. But without an inspired and inerrant Bible, we have nothing upon which we can base the beliefs that we've covered up to this point in the study. We have to have an inspired and inerrant word of God. So that doesn't mean that there haven't been errors in transmitting the Word of God. You know, you can look at the ancient manuscripts and see that, you know, there have been some some copyist mistakes, but, you know, 99.9% of those, uh, actually a little bit more than that, are just spelling mistakes. 
So, uh, you know, we, we really can't count those types of errors against the credibility of the Bible. But, you know, as we close, I think it's worth noting that just about every cult out there denies the inspiration and or the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, I can't think of any cults out there which uh, affirm the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. But, you know, there are groups out there such as the Freemasons or the Unitarian Universalists who believe that the Bible is just another holy book among many. For these groups, the Bible has no more uh, credibility or authority in matters than do other books which are revered by, you know, any given religion. The Freemasons, for example, have written that, quote, the prevailing Masonic opinion is that the Bible is only a symbol of divine will, law, or revelation. So far, no responsible authority has held that a Freemason must believe the Bible or any part of it. End quote. The Unitarian Universalists believe the same thing, essentially, writing that, quote, We regard the Bible as one of the many important religious texts, but do not consider it unique or exclusive in any way. They also commonly assert that we can't really trust the Bible because it was written by people who were biased in their testimony. Of course, the error in such thinking is found in their assumption that somebody can't give historically accurate testimony about something that they're passionate in their belief about. And of course, uh, this isn't true at all, in fact. We know that some of the most reliable reports of the things that happened in uh, Nazi prison camps, for example, were written by Jewish people who were there to witness the horrors and who were, consequently, passionate in their commitment to making sure that nothing like that would ever happen again. The fact that they were there, the fact that they were passionate, did not negate their testimony. And further, the authors of the New Testament were so passionate about their testimony that they were willing to die for it. If it was nothing more than a personal bias, some, if not many, of them would have changed their testimony under pressure, under you know the threat of being killed and having their families killed. And finally, if there were personal bias in the testimony of the authors of Scripture, we wouldn't find embarrassing stories or personal details about the witnesses. The Old Testament, which was written by Jews, testifies of the Jewish uh, unfaithfulness, the, their continual unfaithfulness, rather than their steady faithfulness to God. If they were writing from a bias, they would only tell us of their steady faithfulness. In the New Testament, we find the disciples constantly making fools of themselves. No other way to put it. You know, They were making fools of themselves all the time, and they did nothing heroic. But if these accounts were biased, we would find stories of the disciples doing all these heroic things, and rarely, if ever, making fools of themselves. So, simply stated, the testimony of the Bible is inconsistent with what we know about the testimony of somebody who has a personal bias. And uh, speaking of which, by the way, there's a, a fantastic book out there called The Testimony of the Evangelists, written by uh, Simon Greenleaf, and it's in our recommended reading list uh, if this is something that you're interested in. So these claims by the Unitarian Universalists and the Freemasons are completely unfounded. Uh, the Mormons are another group which deny the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, not surprisingly, since they have uh, denied just about everything that we've covered up to this point. In their eighth article of faith, they write, quote, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. 
So, uh, in other words, they don't believe that the Bible is translated correctly. So, you know, to that extent, uh, the Bible is not the Word of God. So this is reflected in the writing of Mormon apostle Orson Pratt, who wrote, quote, Who, in his right mind, could, for one moment, suppose the Bible in its present form to be a perfect guide? Who knows that even one verse of the Bible has escaped pollution? End quote. And that's, again, from this Mormon apostle named Orson Pratt. Well, Orson, you know, it's funny that you bring that up, since it's extremely well documented that Joseph Smith, when he wrote the Book of Mormon, plagiarized huge portions of the Book of Isaiah. Hmm, isn't that funny? You know, if the original Book of Mormon was really written between 600 B.C. and 421 A.D., which is what they claim, then why does it contain Elizabethan-era English, which would come about 1,200 to 1,300 years after that 421 A.D. date? And why does the Book of Mormon contain words which the King James translators inserted in the text for clarification, but which weren't in the original Hebrew text. It's because Joseph Smith, who wrote the Book of Mormon, copied straight from the Bible. He plagiarized it. In fact, he copies over 27,000 words from the Bible, and sometimes entire paragraphs. And further, while there are over 5,700 ancient manuscripts of the Bible, which confirm that our Bibles today are completely accurate, not only in what they say, but in, you know, all the accounts, Old Testament and New Testament. So why is that there is absolutely no archaeological evidence to support the Book of Mormon. You know, if there were these huge civilizations in North America which consisted of millions and millions of people who uh, who waged war against each other for hundreds of years, as the Book of Mormon teaches, why is there no archaeological evidence to support it? I'll tell you why. It's because it didn't happen. It's fiction. The Book of Mormon is fiction. On the other hand, there are over 25,000 archaeological discoveries which have confirmed the historical reliability of the Bible. Archaeologist Donald J. Wiseman writes that, quote, the geography of Bible lands and visible remains of antiquity were gradually recorded until today more than 25,000 sites within this region and dating to Old Testament times in their broadest sense have been located, end quote. William Albright also wrote that, quote, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition of the value of the Bible as a source of history, end quote. So the Mormons are one group which completely deny the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are yet another group who claim that the original Bible was accurate, but today's copies are not. And of course, this shouldn't surprise us either because the Jehovah's Witnesses have denied just about everything that we've covered up to this point as well. They claim that superstitious scribes from the early church took the name Jehovah out of the early manuscripts and replaced it with words like Lord and God. However, again, you know, it's kind of funny that they use this argument because, well, okay, first of all, we have over 5,700 ancient manuscripts which all say essentially the same thing. Never once is God referred to as Jehovah. Instead, we know that the name Jehovah is derived from the unpronounceable Y-H-W-H and the vowels from the Hebrew word Adonai. So the name Jehovah is actually a man-made word for God. So the next time a Jehovah's Witness 
tells you that you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible, let them know that you can't find the name Jehovah either, and challenge them to direct you to one ancient manuscript which supports their idea or their philosophy that the early texts of the Bible referred to God as Jehovah. They didn't. The Bible today says exactly what it said when it was written. And you know, on top of those 5,700 ancient manuscripts, we also have the writings of the early, early, early church fathers who quoted, I think, every Bible verse except for 13 of them, and 11 of those verses were from Second John, I believe. So, you know, we know that what our Bibles say today is exactly what the Bible said when it was written. So clearly, in order for us to believe anything at all, there must be a standard of truth against which all things are measured. The Bible is the word of God. God cannot err, and thus our Bible cannot err, and therefore our Bible is inerrant. And that is the absolute standard against which we measure all truth. And for that reason, we hold that the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture is an essential to our faith and a doctrine that we will not compromise on. So anyway, I hope this clears it up for anybody who might have had any doubts. I realize that we're running a little bit long today, and I'm sorry for that. But uh, God bless you guys. I hope that this has been a blessing to you guys. If any of you have any questions or comments, uh, you know, you can email me anytime at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. I do want to remind you guys that this study, The Essentials, is being based on a book written by Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Ron Rhodes called Conviction Without Compromise. And if you're interested in picking that book up, it's number one on our recommended reading list. You can find our recommended reading list on BibleStudyPodcast.org over on the right-hand side if you scroll down just a little bit. And I just want to let you guys know that for the Romans study, we've got some good music coming up for you guys. I just got some permission from some great musicians, I believe, to put some good music in with those lessons. So uh, definitely stick around for those. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.